The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. Do you ever wonder what the common denominator of the highest performers is? I don't mean just like high performers. I mean the best of the best. That's mostly athletes, business people, and a few others. To share the answer with us, an expert in this exact area, Don Yeager. Don, welcome to the show. Joel, thank you so much for having me, buddy. You have had the most extraordinary career. You have reported on things that are amazing. Why don't you give us just a tad of background, who you've written for. You are a remarkably accomplished author, journalist, and everything. Go ahead. Give us a minute. Well, I, was a, I started as a newspaper journalist out of college, worked at several newspapers in San Antonio, Dallas, and then here in Florida, where I live today. Uh, and then I had the opportunity a number of years ago to go to work for Sports Illustrated Magazine. And there's only uh, 30 writers at Sports Illustrated, senior writers at Sports Illustrated at any given time. And I, I had the good fortune of being there as associate editor while I was there. And it was just an amazing opportunity to get exposed to the best of the best, as you described. So when you work at a, an organization like uh, Sports Illustrated, do they assign you to a certain sport or were you a generalist or how did that work? So a handful of the writers at SI actually cover beats. You know, they cover the NFL, Major League Baseball. Most of the rest of us were all year long just chasing different stories. And one week I could be in China uh, working on a story about counterfeit golf clubs and how the uh, Chinese mob is selling golf clubs into America. Or uh, the next week I could be at the Kentucky Derby. So you, you never know. And it was an amazing organization, an unbelievable opportunity to work with the best and then to have access. Uh, and that's, I think, the thing that was the most amazing part of that, that I was there for uh, 10 years full time and a couple of years before that part time. And just the opportunity to constantly be able to reach out and have people answer your phone calls because of where you're starting from gave me a real running head start into what I now get to do, which is just tell stories. Well, we'll, we'll deal with that in a second. But one of the things people don't realize is that journalists really just have such great access to amazing people because their job is to share with the rest of us these amazing stories. So any, anything stand out for you? Any fantastic story that, uh, you know, you listen, you've probably done hundreds and hundreds of these, but anything stand out that you want to share real quick? You know, I, I think if I had to pick one um, off the top of my head, it would be uh, that I had this amazing, I had an amazing opportunity 
to live with uh, my hero when I was a kid, uh, Walter Payton, right? I lived with Walter Payton for the last 10 weeks of his life while he was dying and I wrote his autobiography. And that access really was given to me by Walter because we'd done work together previously and he uh, appreciated the way I can, way I handled our relationship and the, and the conversations that we had. And ultimately, as he realized he was going to pass, he thought, you know what, I need to pick the right person to, to share these last weeks with. And I got to be that person. So, you know, access is the key, you know, to, to everything that we want to be and your ability to, to take advantage of the access you have, learn from everyone you meet is, um, is the game changer. Listen, people who know me and, and this whole show is really about the inside track. And, and you had the inside track to a lot of people because it was your business, your job to have the inside track. And now actually your whole business is about uh, dealing with people who are on the inside. They're the, the best, the smartest, the fastest. They're the people who get the job done the best. You have written dozens and dozens of books. You've done all different things. Tell us kind of what you do so we kind of have a little framework about what you're out there doing now. And now that you've left SI and you're kind of on your own. Yeah. It's amazing. I so, know I had an opportunity 10 years ago. They offered an early retirement package to those of us who worked at the magazine and had been there for a long time. I took retirement, if you want to call it that, at age 45 and began the process of, I wanted to build a speaking career. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to be like you, man. And uh, <laughs> so I went out and hired coaches. My commitment was to continue to write one book a year at least. And, uh, and so I've done that. And then I do about 70, between 60 and 70 corporate speaking events a year, mostly around teaching lessons of high performance. What have I learned from great winners? What, what have they taught me that I can teach you and allowing people to kind of through storytelling experience what it is that, uh, that high performers think and the way they, uh, the way they live. But you told me you've done like 28 books. That's more than 10 a year. I mean, it seems like, I don't know how, when those all happen, but that, that's an awful lot of books to produce. It is. I've had a couple of years where I've had more than one, but yeah, it's, um, I actually, I had maybe the greatest year you could ever imagine. If you're a writer, um, I had a, a year, two years ago where I had three books come out in the same year and all three made the New York times bestseller list. And so, uh, and I've been fortunate enough to have 11 now New York Times bestsellers, which do you, know, is, do you know what the accumulated sales of all your books is? I mean, it's gotta be a lot. About 6 million. Wow. There, there cannot be that many authors who've moved 6 million books in their career. Uh, there probably are not. You're correct. Yeah, I'll bet. Hey, so tell me if one of the aspects of being on the inside track is access. Once you get the access, what have you found out from the guys that you deal with what does the inside track look like? You know, what's the, what are the best of the best of the best doing that make them the best? Well, let me, let me answer the question in two parts. The first is, what do you do when you have the inside track? And I, and I would tell you, the most important thing that people appreciate when you have that inside track is that you show up extraordinarily well-prepared, right? You have to come in asking thoughtful questions derived from great research and great preparation before you that have allowed you to walk in and let them know because people feel great when you know details that maybe the general public don't know about them. Um, and so what is it that you can come into a conversation with and ask someone, you know what, the other day I was talking to a high school teammate of yours and he shared this story with me. Tell me more about that. And immediately they're now realizing you care enough about them to have done work before you get there. And that's a really- let me Let me just paraphrase because that that's a pretty great uh, concept that if you're going to deal with the highest level people, 
then you need to be prepared at the highest level. You have to meet preparation with their preparation. I mean, you have to kind of meet your energy with their energy. And that's a pretty important concept. So if you want to go to the next level, you better prepare at the next level, I guess is what you're saying. Absolutely. And, and that preparation next level means digging deeper than other people have dug when given the same opportunity you've been given, right? And so I don't walk in to talk to Michael Jordan about that night he scored 50 points on, on his first game back after a two and a half year layoff. That's boring. He's had that conversation. I want to come in and talk to him about his relationship with his father and how that drove who he became, right? So where, where are you going to go with conversations? That makes people want to welcome you in at a deeper level. The inside track now becomes, you know, the inside lane of the inside track. Well, you know, you're, you're dealing with his inside track. Correct. You know, I mean, you're not just running, you know, where mainstream is running, you're running on the inside. So all the way around, that's a fascinating thing. So what's the next step? So, you know, you talk about high performance and dealing with these guys. What are some of the things these guys are doing? Clearly, we know now you've got to be more prepared, but what are some other things that happen? So I've, I've had the chance over the course of a career to ask a single question of about 2,500 of the greatest winners of our lifetime. And that is, if you could name one habit that you think propelled you, gave you a leg up on everybody else you were competing with, what would that habit be? It's ironic, you mentioned earlier the access question. My father actually challenged me to ask this question when I was graduating from college. He said, as a journalist, you're going to have access other people won't have. Ask them a question that will make you better. So the question I chose was, what have you done? Give me a habit. And the number one habit that came up in all those interviews was that the best learned early to hate losing more than they love winning. Most of us just spend our lifetime trying to win and appreciate winning and patting ourselves on the back and celebrating. The great ones kind of expect that. That's, that's table stakes. That's foundational to who they are. Hating to lose is what drives them. It's wow. what them in a, in a, so in a, is, there, is there a book in your future called The Habit? Uh, no, there's not. But I did actually take these interviews and turn them into a book called The 16 Characteristics of Greatness. I took the top 16 answers that they gave me to that question because I kept a series of notebooks. Oh, yeah, I'll bet. Those interviews over all those years just to that question. And when I retired from SI, I sat down with the notebooks and came up with the list of the top answers. And this was the number one answer by far was that they believed and the way they learned to hate losing more than they, they loved winning was they stopped making excuses when they failed. Most of us, because you never learn to hate anything you can excuse away. <laughs> if I can blame somebody else for my failure, I, I don't have to hate it, right? It's not my fault. If I sit and own it, I, I, I can stew over it. And if I stew over it, I will hate it. And that's what how do, how do these guys deal with, uh, you know, companies have this, this exact situation and on teams, you got five or, or nine or 11 guys on a team. They're all out there. And one guy drops the ball and messes up the whole thing. And the game winning play, the field goal kicker uh, misses the kick. And, you know, the game is lost. Isn't it that guy's fault or how do they all own the loss when, when they try to, when they could be pinned on one guy, how, how does that happen in the locker room? Well, so in a locker room, what happens is most of these players realize that could have been them, right? And for most of them, if you played long enough, it has been you, right? And so that's one of the key elements here is the ability to, through your personal experience, draw empathy for your teammate. Now, it's hard because the social media world and everybody else wants to tell you how it's the kicker's fault. And how do you let that little pip squeak after your 300-pound tail is... <laughs> you know, been drug up and down the field all day long. 
how do you let that little 170 pound kicker ruin your career, ruin your year? You know, the truth is that the really great ones understand that could have been them, right? Because at some stage, like I said, it has been. Everybody misses a block. Everybody drops a catch. Every, every, I mean, you know, everybody that throws an interception. I mean, you're right. And so there's the high profile moment that everybody wants to focus on. But if you're part of a team, you recognize that what you really are is you, you are that person, right? Um, and, and if there's true cohesion, which there is on some teams, then you, there's, there's also the empathy factor in, in which the best teammates know it could have been me. So they, they're able to put themselves in, in the other guy's shoes. Which keeps you from putting it on them because you know that if you do that, the second you fail, it will, everyone will look forward to dumping it on you. Well, let me, let me tell you something else. You know, the spread is three points then, or one point and the field goal kicker misses it. The truth is the team had, uh, you know, what, 59 minutes to do a better job. So they didn't have that close call. So the truth is that you cannot pin it on the one guy, because if we had done better as a team, all 59 minutes, we wouldn't have put this guy in this, in this pressure cooker situation. Absolutely. But the thing you realize is that if you're a true pro, you, you want to be in that pressure situation. You want it hanging on your performance. And, uh, you know, those who don't want it hanging on the performance, they don't last very long. So listen, so let's take this uh, and let's draw a parallel to business. How do business people uh, consider this? How do they apply this exact same philosophy? You know, when you're dealing with audiences, what do you tell them? Well, so I would tell you that if you're the kind of person who when something goes wrong, you are either mentally or verbally blaming someone else. If you're the kind of person that in your office environment, the second something goes wrong, they're all looking for someone to blame, right? What you're doing is you're creating an environment where no one owns the failure. And the lesson here isn't about hating the loser or, you know, or loving to win. It's about elimination of that blaming mentality. So the first lesson you would teach in an, in a business environment is, the second someone in your team starts to point a finger, call them out, right? Make it a, make it a cultural dynamic within your organization that when someone chooses to blame someone else for failure, that you can call them out and that they should be able to do the same to you. And if that happens, this dynamic begins. I hate losing so much, right? Uh, that when it happens to anyone on our team, I'm, I'm invested in trying to make sure it doesn't happen twice. Well, that's, that's the inside track in business is uh, really developing that kind of a culture. That, to me, the best companies really have to own that kind of behavior, that kind of uh, mindset. Uh, I love that. That's what I love about sports. I think sports is a great metaphor for life. I agree. There's no better metaphor because it's, it's a winner and a loser. Uh, you know, uh, it's, it's crystal clear. It's full contact. <laughs> as most as most of life is. Um, you know, one, of the, one of the things that I always say about, uh, about you know, sports, like especially baseball, you know, guy hits the ball and he, it goes to the uh, shortstop, the shortstop, there's a guy on first base, throws it to second, second baseman throws it to first, double play. If the shortstop would have made any other play other than throw it to second, all 50,000 fans in the stadium, whether they're five years old or 95 years old, they all know what the right play is and they all would be mad if something went wrong. You can put three guys in a boardroom and put a problem on the table and all three guys will have a different attitude yeah. they, they, because the rules are not clear. Right. The, the measurements are not clear. It's in, in sports, things are clear. Yep. Businesses need to really work on getting more clear and they're just not that clear. And 
until they get more clear, they're probably going to have some of those kinds of problems, right? I agree completely. And I think that, again, that's an open uh, communication model that, as you said, is a real challenge in most of our business environments, right? We don't have the ability. We don't, we don't speak truth to each other. And the, the true great teams have a model that allows them to speak truth to each other. Yeah. I, listen, I love sports analogies because it, it just makes things clear. And I'm, I'm all about clarity. I, I just, I think clarity is one of the great deficiencies. You can't be on the inside track if you don't have clarity and you can't be in sports without clarity. And sports is very simple and businesses need to do better in this area. Totally agree. Yeah. So give us a couple more examples of some things that you've learned along the way that the greatest performers, what are they doing? The best ones. The other thing that they really get is that they'll never outperform. And this plays into the team discussion, right? They'll never outperform their inner circle. They're never going to be any better than the team they surround themselves with. And that's a thing that's really important for us from a business perspective to think about. Who's in our inner circle? Because if we're never going to outperform them, let's make sure we're surrounding ourselves with the very best we can. Yeah, well, you know, that's who's, I forget who says that, but the, uh, there's somebody that says something about you're the average of the five people you hang out with the most, right? Isn't, yeah. that, isn't that something they say? It is. John Wooden said it. There you go. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's obviously, that's one of the great, one of the great lessons there. Yeah. So how do business people get into, uh, you know, a better inner circle? How do they create that? What, what have you, what are you seeing? Well, the one thing about an inner circle is that it's a very intentional discussion, right? Who's in our inner circle? What do they, what do they look like? The best they're actually realize that they have to be intentional about their inner circle. Who is it that they're giving their time to an inner circle? When I study the way people think about this from a business and, and a team perspective, Inner circle is not the people you wish you spent your time with. It is the people you do spend your time with. And uh, if you realize you're only as good as the, the circle you have around you, then be more intentional about who you give your time to. So, um, for example, does that mean that uh, executives should join masterminds of higher level people? Absolutely. absolutely. And look for people who bring to you a thought process and a skill set that's not they're, they're not reflecting back to you what the world thinks you need to hear. Too many of us, especially in the executive world, right? We are surrounded by people that parrot things back to us because that's how they keep their job. In order for us to be successful, we have to surround ourselves by those who will challenge us uh, to think different, bigger, and broader. Yeah. I don't know how many executives think about joining masterminds, but they should because mastermind groups that are well facilitated. I run one. I don't know if you do, but, but you know, executives need to be in groups with other executives. They need to be able to talk confidentially uh, to a group of people that they trust outside of their company. They need to get ideas uh, from non-competitors. You know, obviously they need to be with people who are uh, in a different environment than themselves, but they absolutely need to be doing those things. And, and I think that's a great way to do it. What are some other things you're seeing? Well, another one that really, really stands out is the truly great ones understand the diversity as promised to all of us, right? So challenge is coming our way and the best ones use those moments. They use moments of challenge as opportunities to differentiate themselves from everybody else, right? There's a way that we all assume someone's going to react in a moment of difficulty. And I, I share a story often in, in a speech. I think you, you were with me when we did it a couple of years ago at, at NSA in Phoenix, but about a, a football player named Warwick Dunn, who, whose mother was, uh, was a police officer and was shot and killed at a robbery at a bank. And in that moment afterward, he did some extraordinary things, including today, 
he buys homes for single moms like his. He just bought his 165th home uh, for a single mom a couple of couple of weeks ago. But he does all those because he said that the lesson he learned was in moments of challenge, you get to be bitter or better. And he wanted to choose better. And that's where the great ones are using adversity. They're using the moments, they think about moments of difficulty different than the rest of us do. We go, woe is me. They say, how do I choose better? Listen, it reinforces that attitude is everything. Absolutely. That is everything. You know, you can be a victim, you can be sad, you can rationalize, blame, all the different stuff. But the best of the best, they just take it, they own it, they get sad about it, and then they move on and they they, move on. They make something out of it. Yep. I have to say, you know, um, Coach K at Duke, pretty famous for the mindset work he does with players is around what he calls next play, right? Which is it doesn't matter if on this play we scored or you turned the ball over. The most important thing that matters is what do we do next? What's your next play? And the problem with most of us is either we fail and we pout, and in that situation, the next play passes us by, or we succeed and we spend a little too much time celebrating, and the next play passes us by, And in either one of those cases, the next play has crushed us. So how do you manage your mindset in a way that allows you to be ready for the next play? And um, I love the way he teaches it. I love watching the way player, young players start to grow and understand it, right? How do you turn one failure into two? You pout. How do you you turn a successful moment into a failure? You over-celebrate. You gloat, you know, right? Yeah. Yeah. Focus on the next play. And you don't have to worry about either one of those things. That's amazing. You know, in golf, they always talk about have a short memory. Yes. Forget about what happened on the last shot. Just focus on the next shot. What you're talking about really is, is even more specific because it talks about don't pout, don't gloat. I don't know how you learn to divorce yourself from the emotion of what just happened, but that is a real skill. I, that's the inside track too, is really kind of getting that skill. The inside well, track is really a combination of an awful lot of skills. Yes, and having is. all of these skills is, is a big part of that, isn't it? Most of them, mental. Most of them, Most mental. Them absolutely mental. mental. Right? Yeah. It's about approach to everything. You know, you harken back to just the conversation we've had, right? It's the approach to how you handle an opportunity given to you because of maybe uh, access. You, you might not have had if you worked somewhere else or you did something else. The mental approach to that access, the preparation that comes with it. It's the mental approach to success or failure. All those things. That's the thing I love about this discussion is that we're talking about the greatest performers on the athletic fields and courts of all time. And yet 95% of their answers to what made them special were mental or emotional or spiritual. How, how, do, those, how do those kind of guys divide their time or how, how does it work in your you know, observation we see that they practice, they're, they're shooting baskets, they're hitting golf balls, they're swinging at you know, baseballs, whatever they're doing, but they're also doing some mental prep. And, and I don't know when they're doing that. Are they doing that when they sleep? Are they doing that during the day? How do they divide their time and focus on? Because if you've got two guys that are awesome and one guy's got a better mindset than the other, the better mindset's going to win. They win every time. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, many of them actually, so the mental strength coaching world is a big piece of what's going on. It's almost in the executive world. I mean, I see the explosion right now of executive coaching 
um, opportunities. There are more and more leaders who are seeking coaches. Uh, masterminds is one good way. Another is one-on-one coaching, whatever those things might look like. But, but you have to find people who will challenge you and offer you a pathway to success. And the pathway, so a lot of these, a lot of these players, a lot of these coaches actually offer up mental skills training, which is based around that ability you know, whether it's visioning, right? Again, there's a lot of really specifics I can get into here with you, but it's that ability. If you, once, once something has happened, where do you look that you have a specific routine you go to, to bring you back to center, which is what they're always trying to get back to. And um, again, much, much greater conversation than we have time for today, but it's so, it's so fascinating to me that more and more people understand that this is the difference between good and great. Right. And it's it's about what we do with the eight and a half inches between our ears. But, you know, these these great athletes, they start learning this in elementary school. They have little league coaches or softball coaches. Then they go into middle school and go to high school, college. And so the the depth of their training doesn't start on on like uh, when they're 25 years old. I mean, they're starting to get conditioned when they're young, I imagine. Right. But what they're getting conditioned to, by and large, most of the time early is the physical skill set. Right. It's the actual, but that, that mental training either happens because you grow up in a house with a parent or a set of parents who understand how to talk you through these issues, or it'll happen when you get to an, to a more elite level. But by and large, most people aren't thinking this way until they get to a little higher level. Yeah. And do you think that, you know, business people who haven't been exposed to these concepts at all in their twenties and thirties, but say they get to be at a higher level, uh, in their 40s, can they really start to kind of acquire these skills? And what do they have to do to, to, to internalize them? Every bit of what we're talking about right here, there's not a window of your life uh, in which your, your mindset can be shaped. It, the truth is it can happen. I mean, I, I loved my relationship with John Wooden. You and I have talked about that. Coach Wooden and I uh, worked together for the last 12 years of his life. I had the opportunity every other month to fly to California for a day with John Wooden for 12 years. And the thing that stood out to me so much was he was every time I'd show up at his little condo, the man was reading, right? You're 98 years old. You're on God's doorstep, right? And, <laughs> and what are you learning? But he believed that every day you're not learning and developing is a day you might as well be dying. And so he was a constant believer in personal development. That's the thing I love about these folks. They're inveterate learners and they know that that the ability to develop never goes away from you. If you keep that brain, if you keep that muscle alive. Well, listen, what's brilliant about you is that you have uh, met and interacted and, and now you're able to share the wisdom of some of these most extraordinary people, whether they're athletes, business people, coaches. And that's, that's a real blessing for you that you have something extraordinary to say and that you can share with the rest of us as a reporter, as somebody who has incredible insight, and, and as, a, as a really wonderful friend, you've become a nice friend of mine, that, and, and I appreciate that. Well, thanks, Joel. And I will tell you, you know, the one thing as in the progression as a presenter and speaker, and you know this as we talk, you know, you start out just hoping that anybody will listen to you. Then you get lucky enough that a lot of people listen to you. And after a while, um, you try to figure out how do, you, how do you actually create opportunities for people to hear you even when you're not present. That's what I love about podcasts with folks like you. It's why, as you and I were talking earlier, I developed a new online learning course, which I know will be in your show notes. But it's just that opportunity to share things without having to be physically present. You're always looking for the next progression of what we get to do. 
Yeah. Well, listen, uh, somebody like you has so much to share. So I, I really appreciate you coming on the show and thank you very much for sharing and being part of it. And uh, Don's contact information, brilliant keynoter. He's out there in the field, uh, you know, I don't know what you say, 60, 70 times a year. And he's just got such an interesting message. If something like what he has to say is interesting to you, you know, look him up and, and be in touch with him. So, Don, thank you very much for sharing and for being part of the show. Appreciate your friendship and uh, look forward to uh, connecting shortly. On the inside track. On the inside track. Take care, man. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a giant thanks to my podcast producer, David Wolf, and his team at Podcast and Radio Networks. Profit from the Inside simply wouldn't be what it is without David and his team. For more information or to learn how you can launch and produce your own podcast, reach out to podcastandradio.com. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.